0: Welcome back to the Irish Mythology Podcast. I'm Marcus O'Hishkin.
1: And I'm Stephanie Hurley. And today we've got an action-packed show for you. Our main story is the final instalment in our retelling of the saga detailing the coming of the gods to Ireland and their fight with the fur bullock. And if you haven't listened to the previous two episodes, it's really worth going back and checking those out first so you'll get the most out of today's story.
0: Yeah, there's going to be quite a lot of um, combat and bloodshed. And today's show features Nuda, Brez, Shreng and Eocard McGurk, who you'll remember from previous episodes. And there's a whole roster of new characters that are going to be big players as this season unfolds. And we're going to also see a bit of action from those battle crows again.
1: Yep, so that's an all-star cast. Um, And I suppose probably worth noting just that mention of combat and bloodshed in case you have some younger listeners who are listening alongside you today and I was thinking about the crows in the last episode and how um, there might be ways to ensure that you don't get on their bad side lots of people are very inclined towards taking the end of bread and going to the park and feeding swans and All that kind of thing, but um, you might want to leave out an offering for the crow gods, just throwing it out there. Um, they're really into nuts and seeds. And uh, I was reading something recently about feeding crows, and apparently, crows really like fruit,
0: really strawberries.
1: Yeah, I did not know that, and low phosphorus cat food.
0: Low, f- low phosphorus cat food,
1: <laughs> yeah, I didn't know there was high phosphorus cat no. food, but apparently, um, yeah, low phosphorus cat food is. Uh, something that they're into. Yeah, so, I don't you know, the phosphorus part is to do with the pH balance. All right. So there I you go. I did not know that. Yep, so mm. maybe some, uh, few offerings for the crow gods. Yeah. Might keep you safe on the battlefield. Who knows?
0: Nice. Um, but anyway, before we crack on with the story, uh, we just want to talk a little bit more about the two-a-day we mentioned last week that the name the Dé Danann, the people of the goddess Danu, for a pantheon of Irish gods was introduced sometime after the 10th century. Before that, where they are given a collective name, they were simply known as the Tuadé or the god people. But the further back you go, the less likely you are to see them referred to as a group at all. And it's really in the pseudo-histories of the medieval era that you start seeing them referred to as the Tuadé and the Tuadé Danon?
1: Yeah, so we mentioned this in episode two about the goddess Bowen, who actually has a connection to one of the characters in this episode. But uh, it's important to remember that Iron Age Ireland was never really a single political unit. There was no concept of nation or Irish national identity. And as a result, there is a really good chance that a pantheon of gods covering the whole island in the way we envisage it today wasn't really a thing back then. So instead, you probably had a situation where in Ireland, and as Irish speakers spread out also northwestern Scotland and the Isle of Man, where there was a multitude of Tua or tribes, each within their own territory. And it's quite possible that each of those had their own gods.
0: It's a real pity that we don't have any written evidence from the pre-Christian era. Um, our ancestors had this oral culture where, you know, stories and philosophies were passed down from generation to generation, and it must have been a really beautiful culture because you had this um this class of of person in, you know, Iron Age and early medieval Ar- Ireland, um, Nephili the poets and they would have learned their stories in verse. It would have been passed down from generation to generation and each one would have added their own little flourish here and there, but it doesn't leave a written record. And as a result, we have to do a lot of guesswork, albeit educated guesswork.
1: Yeah, so there may have been some common gods across several tribes, uh, multiple gods with similar attributes that merged as certain two grew, empowered and absorbed, less powerful ones. Um, so it could be the reason why we see certain stories repeated in different areas, but the names change or the characters change or who the person is partnered with. They might be married to such and such person in one story and then it turns out that they're that person's dad or grandfather in another, another story. So um, there is, I suppose, a lot of fluidity and change in some of these stories.
0: Or you might have had a situation like you would have in Norse mythology where you have um, various classes of supernatural beings all existing within the same mythological universe, and I suppose this this is not just like it is kind of what I think is probably the case um it's not just me who would say it I've you know read it in several places, but I can't remember from from who, but the most common uh, way to look at it is there in Norse mythology you have the Aesir and the Vanir who are two pantheons of gods who sometimes fight against each other and are sometimes allied and that that's often, often compared with the, the two a day and the Formorians who have that kind of relationship but then you also in in the Norse you have light elves, dark elves, ice giants, dwarves and others Whereas here you have, you know, you you have the Firbolg as well, and then you have all the different various classes of fairies like, you know, on Faradarig or the Banshee or the Leprechaun and all these different kind of groups. So, you know, you do get stories where there is some crossover and it's possible there was a lot more back in the day, you know?
1: Yeah, well, I suppose had a written literature developed here before the arrival of Christianity, we might have a much clearer picture of which gods were associated with which territories or which characteristics, maybe, um, and what their roles were or what the relationship of the various classes of supernatural beings were to each other.
0: At any right. what we're seeing in this early medieval peri- period is the retrospective. Retrospective creation of a pantheon by Christian writers, just as the embryo of the idea of a nation in the form of the High Kingship of Ireland is beginning to take shape. Even though you'll find you know long lists of High Kings dating back thousands of years, most of these are actually mythical. And it's only from the late 7th century that you you get this idea of the High King, and at that point it's largely aspirational. And in fact, there never really was you know a high king who had dominion over all all of the islands the way that it's portrayed sometimes
1: yeah so um at this point the most powerful group is the o'neill dynasty whose various branches control most of the northern half of the island and slightly later the kings of leinster are the ones who become the most powerful and it's from these regions that the majority of the irish mythological tales we know today are being written down
0: Yeah, and um, what we're probably seeing is the development of a pantheon based around the gods, the ancestors of the O'Neill dynasty worshipped, along with some of those from the territories they annexed, as well as ones that were important to the ancestors of the rulers of Leinster. And I suppose that seems like a good point to jump back into our story today, which is The Dawning of the Day, Part 3, Fate of the Firbolg. But just to recap... The 2 a day, um, have come from the sky to settle in Ireland. Shreng, who is the champion of the Firbulg, goes to suss them out and the 2 representative Brez tells him that his people are willing to settle for half of the island and a peaceful coexistence with the Firbulg. But the Firbulg chieftain, Yeogud McGurk, is having none of it. So the Morrigan, in her triple form of the Bave, Maka and Neon. Uh, Wreak havoc at the Furbolg capital, Tara, through dark magic, unleashing rains of fire and blood and other uh, various other kinds of mayhem. So that doesn't deter Yokud Mukirk and the Furbolg, so they march off to Congan County Mayo to face the two a day in battle, and we'll take it from there.
1: The mountain, Sleeve Belgadon, the Black Hill, sits to the west of Mania and Connacht. At its summit is a great fort where the midsummer sun trickles gently through the windows, waking the leaders of the two-a-day. They rise and make their way to the fort's great hall where their leader, Núadá, the chief, awaits their presence. The first leader to greet the chief is the Dagda. He's a giant, burly man wearing a short, roughly cut tunic and carrying a giant club that is so mighty and so powerful it can kill nine men with one single blow. Though what is even more magical is that the handle can restore the dead to life again if that's what the Dagda decides. He greets his chief. A good morning for battle, the omens bode well, The hollow heads of the fur bullock will be turned today and they will believe victory is in their grasp. Their confidence will be their undoing. His brother, Ogma, the sun-faced, follows. He is identical in stature, though not a single hair grows from his head. His sun-kissed skin is covered by a garment made of the finest cloth, fastened by a leather belt. A knife hangs from his belt. But this is no ordinary knife, for the Ogma is no ordinary warrior. This knife will hear the battle cries of the fallen, and it will carve their names in pillars of stone. When Ogma speaks, pearls of honey drip from his tongue. Brothers, this glorious golden morn marks the day the hills come alive with divinity, when every mortal who gives himself to the vision of the two a day and help sweep away the old order, will be rewarded in the new world that comes after. They will live as gods. This land, Ireland, will never be the same. The pearls of honey congeal and harden into amber, flying in every direction. They sing Ogma's words as they speed through the windows of the fort, down the slopes and into tents where demigods and mortals, whose allegiance is with the gods, wake from their slumbers. They wake to the Song of Agma, with studs of amber in their earlobes. They rise, leave their tents, and the bellicose roars of this mustering army climb back up to the slope, to the fort. The three Maragina, those phantom crow queens of chaos, appear in Nuada's great hall. Macha, Bave, and Yavon, sit side by side, still reveling in the pandemonium they inflicted upon Occhid's men that led to the fall of Tara. Their shouts are music to my ears, declares Macha. This battlefield will be a banquet. Tonight I will feast on the skulls of the slain. Navoin looks at her sister. Yes, we shall make sure of it. Before the battle is done, Ocadbagh Urk will be on his knees. The Bave's mouth opens fully wide, and a terrifying cry emanates from her chest. The cry travels on the wind, from the fort, down the slopes towards the Bullock camp. We will fly west with their souls to Tiochthun, where the dead reside, my sisters, Bave says. Brez, enters the room, flanked by his mother, Eru, and her sisters, Banva and Fowla. Nuada stands to speak, surrounded by his hall of divinities. The gods are rapt as they wait for the words of their great chief. My high and exalted kin, the battle shall soon begin. Victory has been prophesied. But we must not let that turn our heads. It will take every ounce of strength to win. So our strongest champion will lead. Brez puffs out his chest and lifts his foot to step to the fore. He stops suddenly as Nuada concludes his rising speech. Ogma of the honeyed tongue, man of strength, the honor falls to you. It is you who will lead us to victory in this battle. Brez's lip curls. His fist closes and he holds his breath. Eru places a hand on his shoulder and whispers in his ear as Agma's supporters cheer and bellow for their hero leader. Be patient, my darling son. Soon your time will come.
0: The fur bulg are awakened from their slumbers by a blood-curdling wail. It enters them not just through the ears, but through the pores of their skin. It becomes a thousand needles, and pricks their flesh from within. Chaos ensues, as soldiers, sorcerers and nobles rush from their tents to find the source of the scream. It is nowhere to be seen, yet its presence is visible everywhere and the sight that they actually behold is equally as frightening. For upon the slope of Schlieff-Belgedin, upon that great black hill, the Day's army forms legions. It is twice the size it was the night before. Shreng, the champion of the Furbulg, who had met with Brez of the Day not so long ago, moves quickly through the ranks to muster the troops their numbers have grown they are now equal to ours hasten to your battalions the fight is upon us Fahog the poet sorcerer stands with Oakid the Ferbulg chief as the army prepares oh the honey tongue has seduced the men of Ireland lured them to the invaders' side. They march upon Machnia with splendor and might. And their Macha will thank them for the feast they prepare. Many's ahead will roll on this plain today. The Firbulg army gathers and advances upon its foe on the mountain. The two a day face them from behind a wall of shields. One of the Firbolg battalions is led by Sonya. his men charge, eager to get within thrusting range up with their mighty spears. On the two-a-day side, Agma shouts a command, and their battalion grinds to an immediate halt. In the middle of the line of shields, a gap appears, like parting waves, and the dacta emerges. The Dagda has nothing but the clothes on his back and trusty club on Lord Moor. The Dagda eyes the furbolg knowing what will happen next. Slonga's band accelerates, unimpressed with the two-a-day show of strength. He makes eye contact with the Dagda. I will put my spike right through that brute's heart. I will break their shields. With their bones and slaughter them where they stand. Vodaka the oh, oh, laughs oh, at his performance, oh. and his laugh creates a gust of wind so strong that it cuts the speed at which the fur bug advances by half. As the fur bug struggle to run against the wind, Vodaka grips his club with both hands and swings. The club travels in an arc from his waist, over his head, and down down. The club connects with the ground, and it rumbles. Topsoil subsides and fissures appear in the rock below. A great crack runs from the feet of the dacta to the heels of the rearguard of Zhonya's band. The crevice opens wide and deep, and the Furbulg band is swallowed within the earth, leaving only their screams behind. Agma shouts, Advance! The two-a-day army and the remaining Firbulg band rush to engage each other. Metal meets metal, metal meets flesh, spears break bones, swords plunge through sinew, pierce organs, faces are slashed, skulls are smashed, pieces of beings litter the landscape. By the end of the day, hundreds have fallen on both sides hundreds more nurse wounds, and despite the dacta's early efforts, the Firbulg come off the better. The Firbulg troops march back to their camp, singing songs of victory, carrying the heads of slain Tuaday enemies as trophies. The sound of their celebration is audible from the Tuaday's fortress, where the physician Jean Kecht refreshes the wounded with the water of his healing well. The doctor restores life to those men who have not lost their heads. On the second day, a different tale is told. The two a day, almost restored to full strength, are led by Ogma's swinging blade. As Furbulg heads roll along the ground, they realise they must regroup outside the range of Ogma's sword, whose arc travels the length of a rainbow. And just as they think they are safe from the blade's hook, the slender spears of the two-a-day begin to fall like icy rain from the summer sky. There is no time for them to react and raise their shields above their heads, and one-third of the men are pinned to the soil. Shreng calls upon the Furbulg army to retreat. The day is lost. On this second day of battle, many of the Firbulg men have fallen and remain impaled on the battlefield by two-a-day spears. The third day is much the same, despite some early success for Shreng and his men against a force led by Midir. The next Firbulg battalion is led by Kerb, but they charge with too much enthusiasm to meet the army of the Dagda and his son Bovdarg. A red crow circles in the sky as the Dagda takes Kerb's head clean from his shoulders with a single blow of his club. Bob Darag and his troops create a lake of blood in the gorge created by the Dagda on the first day of battle. That night, while the Furbulk lick their wounds and analyse tactics, the two a day feast and make merry. Ogma is the toast of the gods. And Nuda sits back on his throne, looking pleased with the result. But within earshot of Nuda, Bres says to Midr the proud, Ogma surely is the greatest warrior of the two a day. He will make a great chief someday. Bres and Midr slam their mugs together and drink. They drink. They drink. Nuda does not react or indicate that he is heard, but the thought weighs heavily upon him. Then the fourth day dawns, earlier than the day before. It is the longest day. The two a day, buoyed by two days of victory, rally in front of their fortress. Govnu the smith hands out fresh weapons from his magical forge and Agma takes position to give a speech. When he is interrupted by Nurda, the war chief speaks. Today I will lead! Today we finish this! Below in the Furbulg camp, news reaches Oakhead of Nurda's plan and despite the protests of Shreng, he announces that he too will fight today. By the time the Firbulg army is in formation, the two-a-day force, one great wall of shields, makes a furious charge with their venomous weapons. As their battalions fight, their seers and sorcerers stand on pillars of rock, assisting through spells and illusions and trickery. And the greatest of their magicians, the three Morrigan crows of battle, circle the field searching for Oakwood McCurk, the two armies meet with a crash, swords hit shields, spears are thrust into flesh, twisted into organs, compounding the agony of their victims. The searing hot blades of Gavnu's latest swords cut through the thighs of furbulg yeomen, first boiling their blood, then turning it to vapour that blinds their comrades coming from the rear. By noon, the numbers on each side have thinned, and streams of boiling blood flowing to the lake made by the Dakta and Bob Derg. Nuda and Shreng finally come face to face. Shreng does not hesitate. He deals nine blows on the shield of Nude. Nuda replies with nine of his own. Each warrior deals blows of doom, some fallen shield creating cracks. Some fall on flesh, opening wounds, and finally their shields smash. The two warriors circle each other, wait for the moment to strike, to end the fight. While all eyes rest on Nuda and Shreng, another combat takes place. Ochid McGurk and Brez trade blows. Splinters of shield fly with each sword stroke, but the shield of Brez is the first to break. It snaps in two. And the blow knocks him to the ground. Okid raises his blade to finish the duel. The battle crows glide overhead. The fight between Nuda and Shrang continues. The two warriors swing their swords with fury at one another. The weight of their feet as they charge at each other turns hard ground to soft turf. And there is no sign of one or the other gaining an advantage until a terrifying screech fills the air. Nuda looks up, distracted. Shreng's focus remains. He swings his sword at Nuda's outstretched arm, cutting through the flesh, shattering bone, severing it at the shoulder. Nuda, the great war chief of the Tuaday, falls to the ground, landing beside his own arm. The Dagda and Ogma rush to their brother's aid, swinging club and blade to ward off a fatal blow.
1: In the cloudless sky above the battlefield, the Morrigan crows, Macha, Nevon and Bave, circle with speed and precision. Their loud calls fill the fur bullock with dread. They've not forgotten what happened when they last heard those sounds. They see their target below, Ocud M'kirk, King of the bullock, with a sword raised, primed to land a final blow to the head of Brez. Now is their time, Nuda has fallen and Brez will be next, unless... Through calls and shrieks, whispers and roars, they weave a spell to change the battle's course. Searing sun's heat, Earth's soil is parched, Macurk's thirst for power makes his mouth dry as bone. Ochid the drops his sword. He is overcome with a thirst, the likes of which he has never felt before. His stomach thinks his throat is cut for want of a sup of water. He drops his sword and his shield and stumbles away from where Brez lays prone. He calls for his guard, who surround him at once. Water, find water, I need water. The chief and his protectors wander from the battlefield. The crows follow above them and continue to weave their magic spell. The chief can see all except that which he wants under his foot puzzling turf when his boot hits the ground he is lost. Oakid cannot find a well or a stream to slake his thirst. Running and running, fueled by his thirst, desperately, he rushes ahead of his armed escort, but when he turns around, everyone is gone. There are no soldiers, no battle, no hills, nor grass. He falls to his knees. His knees touch grains of sand. In the desert silence, the level sand stretches as far as he can see. He whimpers. He cries, or at least he tries, but there is no moisture in his body to create tears. His skin burns, blisters form, and then he sees them. The crows. They swoop down upon him, pecking his blisters with their beaks, slashing his seared skin with their claws. He shields his eyes with his hands. The air cools. The attack of the crows has ceased. He uncovers his eyes. Okud kneels on the battlefield, his royal guard dead around him. He looks up to see the sword of Brez carving an arc through the air with that. Brez takes the head of Okut. With their chief dead, the fur bullog finally yield. They choose the warrior, Shreng, to lead them now. The flag of truce is raised. Two a day must also choose a new chief. Nuada lives, but without his arm, he cannot lead. The gods assemble. They hear the case of Ogma and the case of both Yarg. But it was Brez who brought an end to Magurk. It was Brez who won the war, or so they believe. They ordain that Brez will be chief. On the following day, Brez and his friend, shreng now the leaders of their people, meet once more to negotiate a peace. Brez grants a quarter of the island to the fur and Shreng, cognizant of his weary troops, Chooses Connacht. They will gather and make the short journey to Cruchan, where they will build their new capital. The two a day, behind their new chief brez, march east to take possession of Tara.
0: So big changes as a result of that battle.
1: Yeah, the three Morrigan weren't messing at all in the last episode when they said Okud McGurk was going to meet his end.
0: Certainly not. Um, well, we have a, we have as usual made a couple of changes for the adaptation. But whereas before we took short passages we thought were the most interesting and bulked them out a bit, here we had a lot of chopping to do to focus on the characters whose stories we've been telling up to date, and as well as ones who are going to be very important in the future.
1: Yeah, so sometimes in mythology, this is Irish mythology or otherwise, and if you're familiar with the Old Testament of the Bible, you'll be familiar with this. The story breaks off into lists upon lists of names, complete with an on-the-spot family tree, um, and it can be a bit unwieldy for modern eyes and ears.
0: So one of the characters that we cut out is Engba, uh, Engba, Engaba? How would you pronounce that?
1: Your Norwegian or Old Norse is as good as mine. So. <laughs> it's, yeah, I, I, don't,
0: I don't know if that's uh, where that one came from. Um, but anyway, he's Engba of Norway. Uh, he, he doesn't come up again, so it didn't really make sense to include him. But he is interesting in giving some historical context to the story. The, the stories that make up the Lower Gawala Erin, the Book of Invasions of Ireland, um, or as we've been using LGE for short, they're coming together at a time of great change in Ireland. The early 11th century in the aftermath of the Battle of Clontarf which we mentioned in the last episode. So in that battle you had the forces of the High King of Ireland, Brian Brewer of Munster, and his new ally Mel MacDonald, King of Meath, one of the Southern O'Neill, uh, fighting against the, Nor- the Norse Kingdom of Dublin and the King- Kingdom of Leinster.
1: So Brian's army won the battle, but he was killed, as were several of his kinsmen. Myles Shacknell took the high kingship back from Meath, but it was a weakened position after this. So a century later, it was the kings of Leinster who were in pole position, and the descendants of the Norsemen were well integrated into Irish society as a whole by this stage. So when the version of the Book of Invasions in the Book of Leinster is commissioned, uh, the that's the earliest surviving version, it was natural that the author would see fit to honour the alliance of Viking Dublin and Gaelic Leinster by including a Norse ally for the two a day.
0: Now, another change we made that was necessary for continuity uh, is that in the original text, Brez actually dies, not once, but twice. First, he dies by the sword of Ocid McKirk and then without explanation as to how he is still alive or alive again, he is made king when Nuda loses his arm. So the text ends abruptly then with the news that Brez ruled for seven years before dying again after taking a drink while out hunting. So it's fairly obvious now given that he becomes the chief and all of that at the end that we couldn't kill Brez, but the, his importance will become more apparent as we continue the story of the two a day in future episodes.
1: Uh, we also introduce some other important characters in today's story. Ogma, who knew the names as Champion, was a god associated with poetry and rhetoric. And he's credited with the invention of the Oum alphabet, um, an early medieval form of script, mainly found carved on long stones. And we'll go into Ogma and the alphabet in a lot more detail in, few, in a few weeks. Uh, the other major character we introduce here is the Dagda, whose name means the good god. Elsewhere he goes by many different names actually, including Okid Olaher, so that's the horseman great father, and as a result, he's often seen as sort of the supreme god within Irish mythology, similar to Odin in the Norse Aesir pantheon, who is known as the All Father. Um, and now you know what Ochid means too. Ochid Macur because is, is not the only one. In fact, Brez's full name is Ochid Brez, and there are several characters in the in the cycles of Irish mythology that bear that name too. So it can sometimes be difficult to keep track of who is who.
0: And it might seem strange that the Dacta is often portrayed as uncouth, um, but. He, he wears a sackcloth garment that barely falls beneath his waist. He eats vast quantities of food and he belches and he farts and does all sorts of unsavoury things. You'll often see these character, characteristics attributed um, to Christian scribes who wanted to turn the greatest of our gods into a cartoonish character. But it's not uncommon in mythology and religion for the most divine beings to appear like ordinary people. When Odin travels the earth, he appears as an old man who wears a cloak and carries a walking stick. And Jesus dresses like the common folk and abhors vulgar displays of wealth. So to my mind, it's precisely the contrast between the Dagda's appearance and his majestic power that makes him great.
1: The is go-to actually feature a lot in the show going forward. Uh, he has a particularly big part in the story of the second battle of Maitura and in the wooing of Etain, which we mentioned in a previous episode. So both Ogma and the Dagda have big but ultimately supporting roles in the original text, but even the fact that they were supporting roles suggests that either the author wasn't really aware of how important they were or wanted to downgrade them. Uh, similar to how the Morrigan characters are dealt with in the original version, when the thirst overcomes Okud, uh, it's it said to be the work of the, the sorcerers of the two-a-day, but none are explicitly named. So it, m- it made sense, given the role of the three crows of battle played in the last episode, that it would be them who cast a spell on the Fir Bullock chief.
0: Now, the one who loses the most in this, after Oakwood, of course, is Nuida. So he's the chief of the two-a-day when they first come to Ireland, and he loses his chiefdom and he loses his arm. In fact, it's because he loses the arm that he can no longer rule, which I suppose is a bit problematic in our day and age. But limb loss is a repeated theme in world mythology.
1: The earliest known mythological amputee is Queen Vishpla, who in a 3,000 year old Indian poem in the Rig Veda, loses her leg in battle and the gods then assist her by giving her an iron prosthesis. Uh, so minor spoiler here. Uh, if you don't know the story of what comes next, you might want to skip ahead thirty seconds. But Nuada also gets a prosthetic arm, uh, and it's one made of silver, from which he gains the the name Nuada Argetlong. Uh, it's Nuada of the silver arm or a silver hand. Um, arrogant being the the word for silver, and love being hand. Uh, and in Welsh myth, you have um, errant. I'm very sorry to any Welsh speakers out there if I have absolutely butchered (laughs) that but anyway this guy is also of the silver hand uh, who is believed to be a later mythological version of a god called Núth and you can see the resemblance there to the name Núth and an even earlier god in pre-Roman Britain called Nodens.
0: So as we mentioned in the last episode it is probable that Núth was a god of war Now, personally, I don't like committing to attributing roles to the gods unless they're attested in contemporary literature, and we don't have any literature contemporary with the worship of Nuda. However, we do have a bit of evidence that Nodens was a war god. The Romans never conquered Ireland, but where they did go, rather than suppress the native religion, they would associate local gods with their own. And in Gloucestershire in England, which is quite close to the Welsh border, uh, there are runes of an old temple dedicated to Nodens, and there's a bronze plate with an inscription that, when translated, reads To the god Mars Nodens, Flavius Bandinus, the drill instructor, willingly and deservedly fulfills his vow. And you, as you probably know, Mars was the Roman god of war.
1: And then you have uh, Tyr in Norse myth, he's a war god who the Romans also associated with Mars. So much so that he gives his name to Tuesday, while in Romance languages, as well as in the Irish language, the name for Tuesday is derived from the name of Mars, so it's Mardi in French and Mart in Irish. Týr is also famous for losing an arm, though in quite different circumstances to Núitha, when it's prophesized that the giant wolf Fenrir will kill Odin at Ragnarok, uh, the gods devise a plan to bind the wolf with uh, a substance called Gleipnir and it's meant to be like the strongest material ever known and they convince Fenrir to, that this is like a test of his strength and they tell him that they'll release him afterwards after they bind him but Fenrir demands that one of the gods place their arm in his mouth so that if he fails to break the Gleipnir that the, and the gods refuse to release him then you know he'll take the hand off him literally
0: yeah, and it's Tyr who volunteers, and I found this a bit sad, because Tyr and Fenrir are actually best friends up until then. Um, Tyr is the only one who plays with the young wolf, and has done so since he was a very small pup. Well, small in uh, as, small as a giant wolf can, can be. Um, but what does that all mean? Well, it shows that these war gods are always willing to sacrifice themselves for their people. Uh, in cultures where war was important it was a, a way of encouraging sacrifice among those who took up arms which i suppose is very convenient you know if if your whole thing is you want young people to go out and die for to support your rule but it also represents transformation and overcoming adversity the most famous modern example of this is luke skywalker who loses his hand to darth vader in the empire strikes back and then gets a prosthetic hand and goes on to become a great jedi master so the message in this sense is that you know heroes make sacrifices but sacrifices make heroes
1: and speaking of heroes uh shreng is probably the unsung hero in all of this actually because throughout saga, he's been trying to convince Okud the whole time to make peace. But when war becomes inevitable, he's there fighting alongside his people and fighting the great war god the one one-on-one and he ends up leading his people. And up until the 17th century actually, there were written records of people in Connacht uh, claiming ancestry from Shreng.
0: The story itself as we mentioned has that Connacht association. It's called the First Battle of Moitura in the in the main texts, we find it. The more famous and probably older story, The Great Battle of Moytura, sometimes called The Second Battle of Moytura, is generally set in Sligo or Leitrim, depending on who you ask. But this story is set near Kong in County Mayo.
1: Yeah, and what's stranger still is that at the beginning of the story, the place is called Mania uh, before it changes later on to Moytura. But regardless of Names, I suppose, the landscape around Kong is littered with sites that are deeply associated with mythology. So there's a cairn on a byroad between Kong and Ballinrobe that's called Ohi's Cairn, uh, which local myth maintains is the burial place of O'Kendal MacKerr. Um, if you want to go and pay your respects, I guess, and you'll actually find stone circles and passage graves and ring forts all over the place in that neck of the woods.
0: And those sites can be dated from the Neolithic through the Bronze Age and right through to the Iron Age. So you would have had a long history of sites of power being built, abandoned and then being replaced by newer ones, which is the perfect breeding ground for myth. And actually, I'm going to include it in the show notes. There is a an article by Oscar Wilde's Da, actually, about the landscape around Kong and uh, the First Battle of Moitura. What's his name? William, was it? Um. So... You might not have heard of Kong before but you may well have seen it because the 1952 film The Quiet Man starring John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara was filmed in and around Kong so if you want to get a look at the landscape just pop that on. I suppose that's all we have time for today. Next time we take a short break from the two a day and introduce you to the druid that killed John the Baptist. So don't forget to hit subscribe or follow wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. And Can I
1: just come in there? I feel like yeah. you just dropped that in there. You know, Next time we're going to introduce you to the druid that killed John the Baptist. And I feel like there are an awful lot of people listening right now who are sitting there going, did he just say a druid that killed John the Baptist? Yes, yeah. yes we did. Yes, I did. Tune in for the next episode.
0: <laughs> which, you, you, which you'll get if you hit subscribe uh, or follow on whatever podcast app you're listening to. But um, if you've been joining the show so far, you might consider becoming a patron. The Irish Mythology podcast will always be free to listen to on the usual podcast platforms, but it is not free to make. And your financial support can help us keep making it and invest in things like additional recording equipment, recording at locations uh, associated with the sagas and uh, paying actors and crew to make full cast productions of the sagas you love now there's a range of benefits at different price tiers and for just three euro a month you can get early access to each episode longer cuts of each episode from next month story scripts for for every episode and links to art and maps so you can place yourself in the middle of the action and so go and have a look uh, at patreon.com forward slash irish mythology podcast
1: and you can find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P, on Facebook, Irish Mythology Podcast, on Instagram, Irish Mythology, at Irish Mythology even, and online at Irish Podcast.ie. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or another platform that includes ratings and you like the show, please do us a favour and give us a five star rating. Um, it helps us reach a wider audience you never know with your patreon sponsorship i might be able to buy myself a copy of the quiet man <laughs> and if you're feeling really 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 thirsty don't worry you're not oakwood mcgurk losing on the battlefield you just want a drink of water <laughs> stay hydrated wash your hands be safe and we'll see you next time slan live august bandit live uh we'll see you next time on the irish mythology podcast
0: slan thanks for listening You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast, written, presented, and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Nihirni. Theme music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior, on an attribution license.